Section 21 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 21. The proposition which I have now endeavored to illustrate was, at a subsequent period of his life, the opinion of Johnson himself. He said to Sir Joshua Reynolds, If a man does not make new acquaintance as he advances through life, he will soon find himself left alone. A man, sir, should keep his friendship in constant repair. The celebrated Mr. Wilkes, whose notions and habits of life were very opposite to his, but who was ever eminent for literature and vivacity, sallied forth with a little jeu d'esprit upon the following passage in his grammar of the English tongue, prefix to the dictionary. H. Seldom, perhaps, never begins any but the first syllable. In an essay printed in The Public Advertiser, this lively writer enumerated many instances in opposition to this remark. For example, the author of this observation must be a man of a quick apprehension, and of a most comprehensive genius. The position is undoubtedly expressed with too much latitude. This light sally, we may suppose, made no great impression on our lexographer, for we find that he did not alter the passage till many years afterwards. He had the pleasure of being treated in a very different manner by his old pupil, Mr. Garrick, in the following complimentary epigram. On Johnson's Dictionary. Talk of war with a Briton, he'll boldly advance, that one soldier will beat ten of France. Would we alter the boast from the sword to the pen, our odds are greater still, still greater our men. In the deep mines of science, though Frenchmen may toil, can their strength be compared to Locke, Newton, and Boyle? Let them rally their heroes, send forth all their powers, their versemen and prosemen, then match them with ours. First Shakespeare and Milton, like gods in the fight, have put their whole drama and epic to flight. In satires, epistles, and odes would they cope, their numbers retreat before Dryden and Pope, and Johnson, well armed like a hero of yore, has beat forty French, and will beat forty more. Johnson this year gave at once a proof of his benevolence, quickness of apprehension, and admirable art of composition, in the assistance which he gave to Mr. Zachariah Williams, father of the blind lady whom he had humanely received under his roof. Mr. Williams had followed the profession of physic in Wales, but having a very strong propensity to the study of natural philosophy, had made many ingenious advances towards a discovery of the longitude, and repaired to London in hopes of obtaining the great parliamentary reward. He failed of success, but Johnson, having made himself master of his principles and experiments, wrote for him a pamphlet, published in quarto, with the following title. An account of an attempt to ascertain the longitude at sea, by an exact theory of the variation of the magnetical needle, with a table of the variations at the most remarkable cities in Europe, from the year 1660 to 1680. Dagger. To diffuse it more extensively, it was accompanied with an Italian translation on the opposite page, which it is supposed was the work of Signor Beretti, an Italian of considerable literature, who, having come to England a few years before, had been employed in the capacity both of a language-master and an author, and formed an intimacy with Dr. Johnson. 
This pamphlet Johnson presented to the Bodleian Library. On a blank leaf of it is pasted a paragraph cut out of a newspaper, containing an account of the death and character of Williams, plainly written by Johnson. In July this year he had formed some scheme of mental improvement, the particular purpose of which does not appear. But we find in his Prayers and Meditations, page 25, a prayer entitled On the Study of Philosophy as an Instrument of Living, and after it follows a note. This study was not pursued. On the 13th of the same month he wrote in his journal the following scheme of life for Sunday. Having lived, as he with tenderness of conscience expresses himself, not without an habitual reverence for the Sabbath, yet without that attention to its religious duties which Christianity requires. 1. To rise early, and in order to it, to go to sleep early on Saturday. 2. To use some extraordinary devotion in the morning. 3. To examine the tenor of my life, and particularly the last week, and to mark my advances in religion, or recession from it. 4. To read the scripture methodically, with such helps as are at hand. 5. To go to church twice. 6. To read books of divinity, either speculative or practical. 7. To instruct my family. 8. To wear off by meditation any worldly soil contracted in the week. 1756. Etat 47. In 1756 Johnson found that the great fame of his dictionary had not set him above the necessity of making provision for the day that was passing over him. No royal or noble patron extended a munificent hand to give independence to the man who had conferred stability on the language of his country. We may feel indignant that there should have been such unworthy neglect, but we must at the same time congratulate ourselves when we consider that to this very neglect, operating to rouse the natural indolence of his constitution, we may owe many valuable productions, which otherwise, perhaps, might never have appeared. He had spent, during the progress of the work, the money for which he had contracted to write his dictionary. We have seen that the reward of his labor was only fifteen hundred and seventy-five pounds, and when the expense of amnesis and paper and other articles are deducted, his clear profit was very inconsiderable. I once said to him, I am sorry, sir, you did not get more for your dictionary. His answer was, I am sorry, too, but it was very well. The booksellers are generous, liberal-minded men. He, upon all occasions, did ample justice to their character in this respect. He considered them as the patrons of literature, and, indeed, although they have eventually been considerable gainers by his dictionary, it is to them that we owe its having been undertaken and carried through at the risk of great expense, for they were not absolutely sure of being indemnified. On the first day of this year we find, from his private donations, that he had then recovered from sickness, and in February that his eye was restored to its use. The pious gratitude with which he acknowledges mercies upon every occasion is very edifying, as is the humble submission which he breathes when it is the will of his heavenly Father to try him with affliction. As such dispositions become the state of man here, and are the true effects of religious discipline, we cannot but venerate Johnson in one of the most exercised minds that our holy religion hath ever formed. If there be any thoughtless enough to suppose such exercise the weakness of a great understanding, let them look up to Johnson, and be convinced that what he so earnestly practised 
must have a rational foundation. His works this year were an abstract or epitome, in octavo, of his folio dictionary, and a few essays in a monthly publication entitled The Universal Visitor. Christopher Smart, with whose unhappy vacillation of mind he sincerely sympathized, was one of the stated undertakers of this miscellany, and it was to assist him that Johnson sometimes employed his pen. All the essays marked with two asterisks have been ascribed to him, but I am confident, from internal evidence, that of these neither the life of Chaucer, reflections on the state of Portugal, nor an essay on architecture, were written by him. I am equally confident, upon the same evidence, that he wrote Further Thoughts on Agriculture, Dagger, being the sequel of a very inferior essay on the same subject, and which, though carried on as if by the same hand, is both in thinking and expression so far above it, and so strikingly peculiar as to leave no doubt of its true parent, and that he also wrote a dissertation on the state of literature and authors, Dagger, a dissertation on the epitaphs written by Pope. The last of these, indeed, he afterwards added to his idler. Why the essays truly written by him are marked in the same manner with some which he did not write, I cannot explain. But with deference to those who have ascribed to him the three essays which I have rejected, they want all the characteristical marks of Johnstonian composition." He engaged also to superintend and contribute largely to another monthly publication, entitled The Literary Magazine, or Universal Review, the first number of which came out in May this year. What were his emoluments from this undertaking, and what other writers were employed in it, I have not discovered. He continued to write in it, with intermissions, till the fifteenth number, and I think that he never gave better proofs of the force, acuteness, and vivacity of his mind than in this miscellany, whether we consider his original essays or his reviews of the works of others. The preliminary address, Dagger, to the public is a proof how this great man could embellish, with the graces of superior composition, even so trite a thing as the plan of a magazine. His original essays are An Introduction to the Political State of Great Britain, Dagger, Remarks on the Militia Ball, Dagger, Observations on His Britannic Majesty's Treaties with the Empress of Russia and the Landgrave of Hesse Castle, Dagger, Observations on the Present State of Affairs, Dagger, and Memoirs of Frederick III, King of Prussia, Dagger. In all these he displays extensive political knowledge and sagacity, expressed with uncommon energy and perspicuity, without any of those words which he sometimes took a pleasure in adopting in imitation of Sir Thomas Brown, of whose Christian morals he this year gave an addition, with his life prefixed to it, which is one of Johnson's best biographical performances. In one instance only in these essays has he indulged his Brownism, Dr. Robertson, the historian, mentioned it to me, as having at once convinced him that Johnson was the author of the memoirs of the King of Prussia. Speaking of the pride which the old king, the father of his hero, took in being master of the tallest regiment in Europe, he says, To review this towering regiment was his daily pleasure, and to perpetuate it was so much his care, that when he met a tall woman he immediately commanded one of his titanian retinue to marry her, that they might propagate prosperity. 
For this Anglo-Latian word proserity, Latin had, however, the authority of Addison. His reviews are of the following books. Birch's History of the Royal Society, Dagger. Murphy Gray's In Journal, Dagger. Wharton's Essay on the Writings and Genius of Pope, Volume 1, Dagger. Hampton's Translations of Polybius, Dagger. Blackwell's Memoirs of the Court of Augustus, Dagger. Russell's Natural History of Aleppo, Dagger. Sir Isaac Newton's Arguments in a Proof of a Deity, Dagger. Borlase's History of the Isles of Scilly, Dagger. Holmes' Experiments on Bleaching, Dagger. Brown's Christian Morals, Dagger. Hale's on Distilling Seawater, Ventilators in Ships, and Curing an Ill Taste in Milk, Dagger. Lucas's Essays on Waters, Dagger. Keith's Catalogue of the Scottish Bishops, Dagger. Brown's History of Jamaica, Dagger, Philosophical Translations, Volume 49, Dagger, Mrs. Lennox's Translation of Sully's Memoirs, Miscellanies by Elizabeth Harrison, Dagger, Evans's Map and Account of the Middle Colonies in America, Dagger, Letter on the Case of Admiral Bing, Appeal to the People Concerning Admiral Bing, Hanway's Eight Days' Journey and Essays on Tea, the Cadet, a Military Treatise, Dagger, Some Further Particulars in Relation to the Case of Admiral Bing, by a Gentleman of Oxford, The Conduct of the Ministry Relating to the Present War Impartially Examined, Dagger, A Free Inquiry into the Nature and Origin of Evil. All these, from internal evidence, were written by Johnson. Some of them I know he avowed, and have marked them with an asterisk accordingly. Mr. Thomas Davies, indeed, ascribed to him the review of Mr. Burke's inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful, and Sir John Hawkins, with equal discernment, has inserted it in his collection of Johnson's works, whereas it has no resemblance to Johnson's composition, and is well known to have been written by Mr. Murphy, who has acknowledged it to me and many others. It is worthy of remark, in justice to Johnson's political character, which has been misrepresented as abjectly submissive to power, that his observations on the present state of affairs glow with as an animated a spirit of constitutional liberty as can be found anywhere. Thus he begins, The time is now come in which every Englishman expects to be informed of the national affairs, and in which he has a right to have that expectation gratified. For whatever may be urged by ministers, or those whom vanity or interest make the followers of ministers, concerning the necessity of confidence in our governors, and the presumption of prying with profane eyes into the recesses of policy, it is evident that this reverence can be claimed only by counsels yet unexecuted, and projects suspended in deliberation. But when a design has ended in miscarriage or success, when every eye and every ear is witness to general discontent, or general satisfaction. It is then a proper time to disentangle confusion and illustrate obscurity, to show by what causes every extent was produced, and in what effects it is likely to terminate, to lay down with distinct particularity what rumor always huddles in general exclamation, or perplexes by ingested narratives, to show whence happiness or calamity is derived, and whence it may be expected, and honestly to lay before the people what inquiry can gather of the past, and conjecture can estimate of the future. Here we have it assumed as an inconvertible principle, 
that in this country the people are the superintendents of the conduct and measures of those by whom government is administered of the beneficial effect of which the present reign afforded an illustrious example when addresses from all parts of the kingdom controlled an audacious attempt to introduce a new power subversive of the crown a still stronger proof of his patriotic spirit appears in his review of an essay on waters by dr lucas of whom describing him as a man well known to the world for his daring defiance of power when he thought it exerted on the side of wrong he thus speaks the irish ministers drove him from his native country by a proclamation in which they charged him with crimes of which they never intended to call the proof and oppressed by methods equally irresistible by guilt and innocence let the man thus driven into exile for having been the friend of his country be received in every other place as a confessor of liberty and let the tools of power be taught in time that they may rob but cannot impoverish some of his reviews in this magazine are very short accounts of the pieces noted and i mention them only that dr johnson's opinion of the works be known but many of them are examples of elaborate criticism in the most masterly style in his review of the memoirs of the court of augustus he has the resolution to think and speak from his own mind regardless of the cant transmitted from age to age in praise of the ancient romans thus i know not why any one but a schoolboy in his declamation should whine over the commonwealth of rome which grew great only by the misery of the rest of mankind the romans like others as soon as they grew rich grew corrupt and in their corruption sold the lives and freedoms of themselves and of one another. Again, a people who, while they were poor, robbed mankind, and as soon as they became rich, robbed one another. In his review of the miscellanies in prose and verse, published by Elizabeth Harrison, but written by many hands, he gives an eminent proof at once of his orthodoxy and candor. The authors of the essays in prose seem generally to have imitated, or tried to imitate, the copiousness and luxuries of Mrs. Rowe. This, however, is not all their praise. They have labored to add to her brightness of imagery, her purity of sentiments. The poets have had Dr. Watts before their eyes, a writer who, if he stood not in the first class of genius, compensated that defect by a ready application of his powers to the promotion of piety. The attempt to employ the ornaments of romance in the decoration of religion was, I think, first made by Mr. Boyle's martyrdom of Theodora. But Boyle's philosophical studies did not allow him time for the cultivation of style, and the completion of the great design was reserved for Mrs. Rowe. Dr. Watts was one of the first who taught the dissenters to write and speak like other men, by showing them that elegance might consist with piety. They would have both done honor to a better society, for they had that charity which might well make their failings be forgotten, and with which the whole Christian world might wish for communion. They were pure from all the heresies of an age, to which every opinion is become a favorite that the universal church has hitherto detested. This praise, the general interest of mankind, requires to be given to writers who please and do not corrupt, who instruct and do not weary. But to them all human eulogies are vain, whom I believe applauded by angels, and numbered with the just. His defense of tea against Mr. Jonas Hardaway's violent attack upon that elegant and popular beverage shows how very well a man of genius can write upon the slightest subject, 
when he writes, as the Italians say, con amore. I suppose no person ever enjoyed with more relish the infusion of that fragrant leaf than Johnson. The quantities which he drank of it at all hours were so great that his nerves must have been uncommonly strong, not to have been extremely relaxed by such an intemperate use of it. He assured me that he never felt the least inconvenience from it, which is a proof that the fault of his constitution was rather a too great tension of fibres than the contrary. Mr. Hanway wrote an angry answer to Johnson's review of his essay on tea, and Johnson, after a full and deliberate pause, made a reply to it, the only instance, I believe, in the whole course of his life when he condescended to oppose anything that was written against him. I suppose when he thought of any of his little antagonists he was ever justly aware of the sentiment of Ajax and Ovid. Istitulit precium jam nunc certemisnes hujus, qui convictus erit mecum certas feritur. But indeed the good Mr. Hannaway laid himself so open to ridicule that Johnson's, that Johnson's animadversions upon his attack were chiefly to make sport. The generosity with which he pleads the cause of Admiral Byng is highly to the honour of his heart and spirit. Though Voltaire affects to be witty upon the fate of that unfortunate officer, observing that he was shot pour encourager les autres, the nation has been long satisfied that his life was sacrificed to the political fervour of the times. In the vault belonging to the Torrington family, in the church of Southill in Bedfordshire, there is the following epitaph upon his monument, which I have transcribed. To the perpetual disgrace of public justice, the Honourable John Bing, Esquire, Admiral of the Blue, fell a martyr to political persecution, March 14, in the year 1757, when bravery and loyalty were insufficient securities for the life and honour of a naval officer. Johnson's most exquisite critical essay in the literary magazine, and indeed anywhere, is his review of Soame Jennings' Inquiry into the Origin of Evil. Jennings was possessed of lively talents, and a style eminently pure and easy, and could very happily play with a light subject, either in prose or verse. But when he speculated on that most difficult and excruciating question, the origin of evil, he ventured far beyond his depth, and accordingly was exposed by Johnson, both with acute argument and brilliant wit. I remember when the late Mr. Bicknell's humorous performance, entitled The Musical Travellers of Joel Collier, in which a slight attempt is made to ridicule Johnson, was ascribed to Soame Jennings. Ha! said Johnson. I thought I had given him enough of it. His triumph over Jennings is thus described by my friend Mr. Courtenay in his poetical review of the literary and moral character of Dr. Johnson, a performance of such merit that had I not been honoured with a very kind and partial notice in it, I should echo the sentiments of men of the first taste loudly in its praise. When specious sophists with presumption scan the source of evil hidden still from man, revive Arabian tales and vainly hope to rival St. John and his scholar Pope, through metaphysics spread the gloom of night, by reason star he guides our aching sight, the bounds of knowledge marks and points the way to pathless wastes where wildered sages stray, where like a farthing lick boy Jenin stands and the dim torch drops from his feeble hands. Note. Some time after Dr. Johnson's death there appeared in the newspapers and magazines an illiberal and petulant attack upon him, in the form of an epitaph, 
under the name of Mr. Soam Jennings, very unworthy of that gentleman, who had quietly submitted to the critical lash while Johnson lived. It assumed, as characteristic of him, all the vulgar circumstances of abuse which had circulated amongst the ignorant. It was an unbecoming indulgence of puny resentment, at a time when he himself was at a very advanced age, and had a near prospect of descending to the grave. I was truly sorry for it, for he was then become an avowed, and, as my Lord Bishop of London, who had a serious conversation with him on the subject, assures me, a sincere Christian. He could not expect that Johnson's numerous friends would patiently bear to have the memory of their master stigmatized by no mean pen, but that at least one would be found to retort. Accordingly, this unjust and sarcastic epitaph was met in the same public field by an answer, in terms by no means soft, and such as wanton provocation only could justify. Epitaph. Prepared for a creature not quite dead, yet. Here lies a little ugly, nauseous elf, who, judging only from its wretched self, feebly attempted, petulant and vain, the origin of evil to explain. A mighty genius at this elf displeased, with a strong critic grasped the urchin seized. For thirty years its coward spleen it kept, till in the dust the mighty genius slept, then stunk and fretted in expiring snuff, and blinked at Johnson with its last poor puff. End of note. This year Mr. William Payne, brother of the respectable bookseller of that name, published an introduction to the game of draughts, to which Johnson contributed a dedication to the Earl of Rochford, and a preface, both of which are admirably adapted to the treatise to which they are prefixed. Johnson, I believe, did not play at draughts after leaving college, by which he suffered, for it would have afforded him an innocent, soothing relief from the melancholy which distressed him so often. I have often heard him regret that he had not learnt to play at cards, and the game of draughts we know is peculiarly calculated to fix the attention without straining it. There is a composure and gravity in draughts which insensibly tranquillizes the mind, and accordingly the Dutch are fond of it, as they are of smoking, of the sedative influence of which, though he himself never smoked, he had a high opinion. Besides, there is in draughts some exercise of the faculties, and accordingly, Johnson, wishing to dignify the subject in his dedication, with what is most estimable in it, observes, Triflers may find or make anything a trifle, but since it is the great characteristic of a wise man to see events in their courses, to obviate consequences and ascertain contingencies, your lordship will think nothing a trifle by which the mind is inured to caution, foresight, and circumspection. End of section 21